0: I'm Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. Everything centerfire and rimfire. A couple of things real quick. Got a PR1 class coming up at the end of the month, and we're going to be in Colorado for RF as well as high angle and uh, other contract work up there. But I wanted to get back to you guys with more quality podcasts, more quantity podcasts. Today is definitely, definitely a quality podcast. I have with me Zach Smith and Ray Sanchez from Thunderbeast Arms Corporation. Hey guys, say hello. How's it going, guys? Hello. Well, good, man. Let, let's just get right into this. Zach, Zach, where are you from? How old are you? Uh, when, when, how'd you how'd you get where you are now? Um, I'm originally from
1: Wisconsin. I'm in my late 40s. I'm actually the youngest of the three Thunderbeast owners. Um, I was an electrical engineer for about what, 15, 20 years uh, for big high tech companies, and then. So actually, when I moved out to Colorado for my first real job after college, this was in the late 90s, I discovered, I think the path, I discovered that we had considered carry permits, which was a new thing to me. And then I discovered IDPA and IPSC and then 3GUN, and then that shortly segued to like long range stuff. Um, and then I met Ray and uh, here we are. So, Well, how'd you meet Ray? Um, I think we found each other online.
0: Oh, wow. Because, one of those.
2: Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was worth that in 1995. Um,
0: <laughs> it depends on which way you swipe, I guess. <laughs> what about you, Ray? Yeah. How how old are you? Where are you from? How'd you end up here?
2: Uh, I'm, I'm 54. I grew up in uh, Staten Island, New York. Um, I've always been athletic. I was, uh, playing like competitive racquetball when I was younger and I got into bike racing and, Bike racing is what got me out of New York into Colorado. I came out here to do some nationals and I was like what the heck am I doing living in New York trying to race bikes? So I uh, went home after some races, packed my stuff up, moved out to Colorado. Um, I said I'm 54 so I was racing against guys like John Tomac and Ned Overend and Rishi Graywall. When I got out of racing, I was always into shooting so I started shooting and you know you had to have some way to meet that competitive bug so going to local matches out here and it just became normal to like with a pistol just to back up how far away can i still make the steel ring you know how far away can i still make the steel ring and then okay it's too far for a pistol i need a carbine and okay it's too far for a carbine and started getting into bulk guns and we're pretty fortunate here in colorado where uh, just east of town here of fort collins we have the pointy national grasslands and you can kind of see the curvature of the earth out there. So you can put steel out as far as you want and try to hit it. So it was uh, a steep learning curve because there wasn't a lot to go look at like there is now. And, uh, but Zach did have a webpage, the demigod.org page. And uh, that's what I found and contacted him. And it turns out he lives like a
1: mile down the road from me. So it was, uh, I guess it was meant to be so that being kind of a nerd i i had uh i had gotten into three guns and my three gun crew got into long range and i was a match called the steel safari down in new mexico that dave Wheeler used to run and they would all at this point it was like word of mouth only this is the early 2000s like 2002 or so um and you know
0: back we then, probably competed against one against one another in one of those matches
1: Probably yeah, those things were yeah. awesome, weren't they? Yeah, I love um, that match. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'll give a plug. Like, I'm I'm now the match director of the Steel Safari. the the ra- The ranch has changed owners twice since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, but right. that coming, this is uh, where are we? Mid new yeah. right now. That that's coming up in like three weeks. Yeah. So that that'll be the uh, what the twenty fifth Steel Safari. I think is coming up here in mm-hmm. just a mm-hmm. little bit. I've only been match director since '08, um, but. uh, yeah, it's going on. Anyway, yeah, I wrote up a bunch of information just to kind of like organize my thoughts. And then I posted it on like ARFCOM and like Sniper's Hide and some other places. And a lot of people were interested because there wasn't a lot of public information. It's like you could read like Ultimate Sniper and you could buy like a Remington and put a Leopold Mark IV on it. But like there wasn't a lot of information. If you wanted to know about like Mills or like Density Altitude or like Accuracy International or like any of that stuff, I mean, it was far. You know how it was. There was not a lot of information online back
0: then. On. No, nah, there really wasn't. Yeah, that I won that match with uh, Accuracy International AW. I screwed on a sixteen inch barrel for that because of the because of the ranges and stuff. I didn't really need to go far. And I I won it and I had a blast. It was an absolute blast out there at Still Safari. But you're right, there were no there was no information at all. I always sees it whenever I was Making my ranges back in the day i had I had two sticks with three hundred foot of rope between it, and I would just walk out because <laughs> <laughs> there weren't there weren't any cheap laser range finders or anything else. I ended up with an old vietnam era g b s five and uh, that thing only read in five-meter increments, and you could only get 30 readings before you had to recharge the 24-volt battery. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it, was, it was insane. <laughs> that thing was huge, too. It was massive. You couldn't carry it around. Now you can put them in your pocket. I don't know. We, we talk about that technology, how it's changed over the years and everything else. But the, the biggest thing that's changed is just information exchange, exactly like what you were talking about. You know, the Plaster's book, you know, was was about it. Um, you know, there was some other stuff that was done. You know, the complete fifty caliber sniper that that book yep. was out, but there wasn't, you know, now you just get information off the internet. Well, well, what time, when, when did, did you start, uh, when did you guys get together and start, uh, T-back?
1: 2007. Yeah. So we had, so funny story. Shane was in the Navy and his retirement duty station was Cheyenne as a recruiter, but he had been a master machinist. And we didn't know this until later, Yeah. but, um, we had met, I, I don't Ray has the story of how he met. Um, but we met up and we've been shooting with him for a little bit and we had all been shooting jet cans, uh, Mike's gun sales and service in Texas. Mm-hmm. And I have, I still have two of those cans and Ray probably has a couple, yeah. um, Shane had some, because at the time, I mean, back then we're talking what, 20 years ago, like the cans on the market were pretty crummy for precision rifles. So for that matter, even screw it on your AR and hope your point of impact hasn't shifted like six inches or whatever, right. Or more. Right. Yep. Um, like, I used to have old cans from that era. Like, I have an old, like, Gemtech uh, Halo, I guess. Um, and it's not very accurate. But if you put it on and don't touch it, you're all right. Um, but we were shooting the jets because at the time, they were relatively light, and they direct threaded on, and they were pretty okay for precision rifle. Um, and then, I don't know what happened to jet. They seemed like, to my, my, my friends who had cans on order, they stopped being able to get cans from them, so you know, me, Ray, and Shane kind of looked at each other and said, maybe we should make some cans. Mm-hmm. So we started, we incorporated the company in 2007. Our SOT was issued in like February or January or February of 08. Um, and then immediately we started to make some prototypes. And then we had the 30, the original 30P uh, was on the market within probably a month. Yeah, it took a little while. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was,
2: you know, I had cans, Zach had cans. We were talking to Shane, and he was he just said they weren't all that hard to make. Right. So we were like, huh, you know. And I was—I was working at a shop called Jensen Arms, which was a pretty epic shop out here in Northern Colorado. Any anybody from Northern Colorado will remember Jensen Arms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I talked the owner into getting an SOT, so I would wouldn't have to drive down to Denver to do the transfers I was doing. And he agreed as long as I came in one day a week and told them what to order and, and help them keep stock in the store. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the things I learned at that point was, you know, we were calling to order 50, 60 cans at a time, which back then was a lot of suppressors because AAC contacted us to be a distributor. GemTech contacted us to be a distributor for them. Cause we were moving so much product, mm-hmm. but, uh, the customer service from those companies wasn't that awesome, and you know, as somebody shooting precision rifle, the cans weren't really awesome for precision rifles either. So uh, we just kind of thought we could build a better mousetrap, and if we had decent customer service and a product that was at least as good, if not better, we could have a successful
1: company. And uh, well, honestly, I mean, from I don't, <laughs> you can give your impression, Ray, but in like two thousand eight. I thought it was just cool that we could have a company that made cans and we had an SOT and that, that meant that I could have cans. Right. Again. And that you was know. a big part of it. I, I don't think we ever, we didn't go into this like with an MBA sitting down, like planning out a company, to like be a success. I mean, I was, I think where it's ended up, uh, is, uh, way further than I thought we would ever be able to take it.
2: Um, I knew we could be successful cause I was working in the industry a little bit, I guess, but, uh, you know it, the i think the best part of it is you know we sat down zach shane and myself and the main thing was accuracy right like we, we like both guns we like precision rifles so from the ground up we build cans for precision rifles mm-hmm. um we hold a lot totter, tighter tolerances than most other companies we check every can that we build for run out before it leaves the shop to make sure it's as straight as it could be um because, like, we've learned over the years, a bullet doesn't have to touch a baffle to have an adverse effect on accuracy downrange, right? That's why the crown of your muzzle is so important, right? If somebody cuts a crappy crown, what happens to the accuracy of your rifle? It goes away.
0: It does. Um.
2: Yeah, so we learned, uh, you know, we, we take our time. We build every can, as straight as we can. Um, we do not wire EDM anything. We just take our time, really tight tolerances on the parts, um, really pay attention to the welding and everything else that goes into it. And we just care about the overall product being as good as we could possibly make it because every time you pull the trigger, it's money, right? Yep. If you're shooting a 338 Lapua or a, a 308, if you're buying ammo from $2 to $8 every time you pull the trigger. So we want to make the product as good as we can so that, those rounds go where they're supposed to go when you when you send one.
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right on that. And it, you don't you don't like we were talking. You don't have to necessarily have to have a baffle strike to cause your accuracy to degrade. Go into that just a little bit, Ray. Well,
2: I mean, I'm not Brian Litz, but I understand that you can't affect the bullet's flight. Right? Bullets need to be stable. If you have a bullet getting close to a baffle inside the suppressor and it affects the the back of that bullet just a little bit and it starts to to destabilize you know wobble um, you'll still get a good 100 yard zero but um you know now your first shot of the day in a match at 800 900 a thousand yards whatever um if that bullet is starting to wobble inside that suppressor and it's not coming out stable you don't know why you're missing down range. You don't know if you pulled a shot. You don't know if you messed up the wind call, right? It just leaves too much to chance. You just don't know. Um, so we build our cans straight. We want that bullet as symmetrical going through that bore as possible. And so as it's passing by go, the
0: baffles, you need you need mm-hmm. the exact same clearance all the way around that bullet where you're not, you know, a thou off here on one side or a thou off there is what you're saying.
2: Right, or I mean, or all coming time. close, like maybe almost hitting a baffle, like I said, not actually hitting, but being a couple foul off a baffle is enough to affect mm-hmm. that bullet stability, well,
1: which will affect you downrange. You know, and the question I, I think the question <laughs> I heard was like, you know, how do you make an accurate can? Let's well, not. I mean, let's let's go to the to the root of the problem, so to speak. I mean, like mounts, suppressor mounts, and barrel threads mm-hmm. are the principal cause. Of baffle strikes and inaccuracy. I mean, like there are tons of mounts that don't have great accuracy because they rattle or they like are between clicks or whatever. Right. And some of them just don't lock very tight. And then you look at baffle strikes. The number one cause of baffle strikes are are rifle threads that are trash. Right.
2: Bad shoulders. You know, crooked shoulder. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if you can get and one thing, I mean, it took us like eight years, six years, or eight years or something to come out with our SR mount because we had. You know, we had direct thread and we had thread thread over muzzle brake onto a tapered shoulder. That's all good. That's that's what the CB mount that we have now is. Most cans that we sell are the CB mount, which is totally perfect for precision rifles. But we wanted to make like a full auto rated mount or what we call a secondary lock that still had the accuracy on sniper guns, but you could throw it on like a Mark 18 and run eight megs through it full auto and it would still keep the can tight and be accurate. Mm -hmm. So that's what, and that's why we didn't have a QD mount, so to speak, for like, the first eight years is because we wanted one. We didn't want one that, like, rattled or didn't keep the accuracy. We wanted a sniper mount that was also rated for accuracy. And the reality is almost every military contract or solicitation for suppressors, they have the requirement of a secondary lock lockout there anyway, which is what the SR has
0: yeah i know we, yes, we have you know, to deal you know, with that you know, whenever uh, we're uh doing the size on suppressor covers because we do sell a lot of those and we say never cover yeah. up the qd portion of it at all i don't know i i'm old school i you're freaking thunder Beast arms corporation i'm in awe of you guys I'm, i've been a fan for a long time if you say that that qd mount works i believe you uh i'm just old school man i like direct thread <laughs> just for the exact reasons that you guys are talking about
2: yeah but that like that's why it took us so long we We worked on that SR mount for at least four years before we released it. Right. Um, It is as accurate and as repeatable
1: as a direct thread. I mean. Well, like when AI submitted the ASR solicitation, they used our 338 Ultra SR with that mount. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it meets the requirement and it's, as accurate as any, as any sniper, you know, system.
0: So, oh, I know. I've, I've yeah. seen it. I've seen it work. I've seen it work. And it's just yeah. that for so long, <laughs> you know, back where you you're talking about jet, I don't know what happened to them either. They were, they're only like a little over an hour from us. And I haven't heard from those guys in, in forever, but I, I, I don't know. I, I know that y'all had to probably come up with some, some pretty good engineering to make that work. And I know it does work. I know that, you know, it, it does but there are a lot of QD mounts out there that do not ask me how I know
2: yeah i know that's and that's why it took us four or five years to release one because we would take things out and test we test pretty hard before we release anything yeah and uh you know you thought you had it there but you put several thousand rounds through it and oh we got to tweak this then you waste three or four weeks trying to tweak it and you realize well you really can't tweak it you just gotta scrap and start again
0: yeah (laughs) gotta shit can it and start over well congratulations on getting that I'm, i'm definitely going to uh going to look at that on, you know, my, uh, my accuracy, I'm looking at two of mine that I have right here right now in the, in the studio. And they both have, they both have uh, teaback cans on them. And I'll, I'll have to look in it. May I talk, maybe I go up and visit with you guys whenever I get up there next month. Yeah, come on up. Yeah, very good. Very good. So let me ask you a question uh, just on manufacturing. Uh, let's say uh, you, you walk in, you walk in, y'all are, y'all are going to sit there in, in your shop and you're going to, you're going to make a one can just for you and you're sitting there with a bunch of raw material over in receiving and a bunch of machines how long does it take to make one can
1: probably 8 hours or so i mm-hmm. would guess yeah just with all the touch to to one, yeah okay but that's not how i mean so right but that's not how we manufacture them, obviously. No, You're I know, I know yeah. that.
0: I'm just wondering, you know what it yeah. what it is time, you know, from a, a pile of raw material, you know, over in bins, you know, to to run it through the machines to get, you know, the CNCs to get all of your baffles right and everything else, and then to put it together and weld it up. So that that's eight or nine hours. I, I understand that. So that that's pretty cool. But y'all have a y'all have QC quality control through all the processes. I know that you do. Um, Whenever y'all were starting, I guess y'all shit-canned a lot of them, huh? That didn't come out right?
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 We So we, we cut our cans. Um, we cut our baffles sequentially. So, like, we don't cut a bunch of number ones and then a bunch of number twos and a bunch of number threes and, you know, have buckets of different parts and just put them together. Our uh, operators cut baffle number one. And then when they cut baffle number two, it has to clip into baffle number the back of baffle number one, and fits sort of like Legos. Yeah. And you know we hold really tight tolerances throughout the whole process. Our uh, our twenty two can our twenty two takedown is a good representation of the quality. Um, Most of the twenty two cans on the market, when you take them apart, the baffles are loose. They you know they don't stay together. Mm -hmm. You take our twenty two can apart, and you know the baffles clip together like Legos. Mm -hmm. There's is really nice, clicky fit there. Um, we do that with our ultra series, our magnuses, our dominuses. You know, we, we cut those types of tolerances the whole way. Um, just ends up for a better, straighter product at the end. You know,
0: right, right. Well, I've, I've never had any problems with us uh, cans, not at all. So, on that first year that y'all were in business, how many how many cans did y'all make that first year?
1: Hundred,
0: <laughs> maybe a hundred. Okay. Uh, how about last year?
1: Um, we don't really say, but it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I right. think I think I think people, just having been around the industry for a while, I think people like vastly underestimate how. <laughs> I, I mean, we don't consider ourselves like a big silencer manufacturer. I mean, you know, I hope we have a big impact because we make a really good product. But mm-hmm. like, we don't see ourselves as like a huge manufacturer. But even so, I mean, we have forty mid like some employees. We run two two shifts right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, what, like a sixteen thousand square foot facility
3: mm-hmm.
1: just dedicated to manufacturing. We do everything on site except for, like, the high-tech coatings, like DLC and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, like, the scale of the operation, I think, is bigger than a lot of people think. But I think people, like, you know, some of us are just, like, still, still in the garage. I mean, if you're in the garage, you're making, I mean, 100 cans a year is pretty busy if you're in your garage. Yeah, right. but
2: I think especially for the quality we hold, because... Right. Like everything we make, like we're all on the same page. We won't make something and release it if unless it's industry leading in some way. Right. Like our five inch, our, our ultra series, one and a half inch diameter cans, the five, seven, and nine, they're lighter and quieter than anything else in that in those sizes. You know, mm-hmm. um, the only way the industry was able to make a can quieter than our ultra nine, which is a one and a half inch diameter can was to go to a fatter diameter can at nine inches, right? So it was no longer a an apples-to-apples apples comparison. Right. When we, when we made a fatter nine-inch can, boom, again, it's the top spot mm-hmm. as far as suppression again. Um, but everything we make, you know, I, I tell people, everybody else is kind of more like Ford Chevy. We're definitely more like Ferrari. Yep. We have a lot more hands-on every suppressor. Every suppressor is checked for run out. We have some other checks we don't really talk about that are kind of proprietary to what we do, but um, we guarantee everything that leaves our shop to be pretty much dead nuts straight and industry leading in weight and suppression for its, for its storm factor.
0: Right. What, what about, what about run out? Let's, let's, let's compare, let's compare yours to the Chevy model you were talking about.
1: I, well, I mean, I'll just go into what ours is and Ray can say what some yeah, of the competitors ahead. we're not going to name anybody out no like, i got you our spec i mean our spec is one inch of uh sorry one thousandth of run out per inch of can linear so a nine and like an ultra nine inch can has to have less than 0.009 inches right mm-hmm. but yeah. like typically we're at like 0.003 or less so a third of the maximum is typical and we just did a uh instagram video i think last week they just showed a whole tray of them being checked in that station, and they were all, I think, less than .002. Wow. You know, so we're talking like 1.0017 or .0015, which is 1.5 thousandths over 9 inches of can length, Mm -hmm. which is pretty exceptional. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not uncommon to see double-digit tenths on some other cans. That's
2: actually the question I get asked by other suppressor manufacturers the most, to tell you the truth, is, how do we make our cans so straight?
0: Yeah. You
2: know, cause 'cause we go to shoots and we're friendly with everybody. And I have a lot of other companies just be like, wow, how do you get your cans so straight? Um, And it's the whole process, you know? It it really is the whole process. It's not cutting batches of number ones and batches of number twos and taking stuff out of the buckets and putting them
1: together. Mm there's a lot of, you know, paying attention to it. I mean, what, you know, one, one part of that is doing everything in house. We control every part. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean like that's, that's a huge demand because we're out getting in like castings and like outsourcing stuff. Like Everything we make, we make in house and can do our own QC, you know? And it's not like, you know, we make a, it's not like we make a thousand parts and throw it 500 that, and that the scrap rate is super, super low. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you don't, uh, that's just wasted money and time if you do that. Right. But, I mean, in some sense, you know, people always ask, you know, well, how do you make an accurate can? I'm like, well, you just don't do the things that make it inaccurate, like all the shortcuts, you know. Right. Uh, but if you, if you start from the ground up and every step of the way, you're like, look, our objective is to keep this thing straight in the line the whole time. Then it kind of what to do almost becomes obvious. Now, there's a few like weird things that we do that are not intuitive, but also help. But in any case. All right.
2: Yeah, we uh, we don't have a wire EDM machine like a lot of the companies.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: you know we don't even have one um said it's not uncommon i have cans from other companies 20 25,000 run out on the exit end wow um sometimes more i've had cans from companies come we couldn't shoot we sent back we're like this will definitely call the strike <laughs> right and we do get everything you know we get everything interesting it's no secret that you know that's what we do right all the companies are doing the same thing right i'm sure companies are buying our cans and looking at them and testing them and we get everything out there that's interesting and it's not just sound reduction but it's how good are the well qualities how good's the fit and finish how is the run out you know overall quality of the of the product and yeah we try to pay attention to all of it and not we try we do we pay attention to all of it we want it it's a lifelong product it should last you forever
0: well mine have lasted uh, a long, long, long time. So, and I'm not saying so much in years, but just in actual use, uh, yeah.
2: And you <laughs> use your stuff way harder than yeah. some people ever will. Yeah, that, <laughs>
0: that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I won't get into that too much. Anyway, what's the best way to clean one?
2: CLR. All and right. Now you, you plug the motherland with a, a foamy earplug or something, mm-hmm. put it in a Mason jar or a bucket. Fill it with CLR and shake it, and you'll see the CLR start to foam.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Um, let it sit for a few hours, go back agitated again, let it sit overnight, pour it out, pour fresh CLR in. Depending on how heavy you let it get, will depend on how much soaking is needed. Um, typically, if you address it at less than an ounce of extra weight, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be too bad. But if you let five or six ounces build up, well, then you could be soaking for quite a while
0: okay and but
2: clr is is the way to do it um you got to be careful just because i'm saying clr with our suppressors our suppressors are all grade five tie. clr clr will not hurt the tie if you have a stainless can or any type of other alloy you have to be careful because the clr will eat on stainlesses and stuff
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that comes up, that comes up quite a bit when it comes to to rifle cleaning, because I have got, I've got my own thoughts on it and what I've, you know, developed over the last couple of decades. And it's like, um, you know, be very careful with solvents, putting it, putting that into your, your barrels, because the solvent is stupid, and it eats all metal with equal vigor. So if you're trying to clean out right. your copper, you know, and it's it's working on your stainless just as hard as it's working on the copper because it doesn't know the difference. So, yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I guess titanium, the unobtainium is is uh, <laughs> uh, sterner stuff, I guess you would say.
2: Yeah, it, it There is no reaction with the CLR and the tie, so you're safe. Right. Um, again, if you have somebody's stainless can… Don't do it because yeah, for that matter, if
1: you have like a DT, like a direct thread insert in the end of your ultra, or you have an SR can that has steel parts in the end, you don't want to get, you don't want to soak those parts in right. CLR. So just try to keep the CLR away from the from the steel parts.
0: Yeah. What about what about CLR in, inside a uh, inside one of those um, agitation machines? What are they called? I forget. Parts bath. You know what uh, I'm talking uh, about. Ultra, um, yeah, ultrasonic. Yeah, cleaner. that
2: could work, but you, you have to be careful because we've done that. Mm-hmm. And we've had the CLR eat through the 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 machine itself, the, the you know the metal bin that you put the stuff in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we've we've ruined we've ruined ultrasonics because the the CLR will eat
1: through those little stainless bins. Wow. I mean people have all these ideas on, on on how they might clean. And I'm like, hey, you know what? As long as you're not gonna create poison gas by accident, go ahead and try it. Yeah. But you know we've cleaned a lot of cans over the last 15 years and this just the mason jar and the CL, the only way you can get better than just soaking in clr is to have a pump that will pump clr through it mm-hmm. that's the only thing we found actually better than just soaking it so
2: so i'm um, surprised somebody hasn't made one yet so any of you entrepreneurial guys listening there you go we just gave you a million dollar idea for you to press <laughs>
0: i'll bring you guys a freaking prototype when i'm up there next month how's that
2: There
0: you go. Yeah, that should work out pretty good. Well, cool, man. And I guess, I guess you said we had spoken earlier. You had that one experience to where one can just got like completely too dirty. Tell me about that, Ray.
2: Yeah, we had a guy who did, I forget his number. He came 20 something thousand rounds of six, five through an ultra seven. And we got a phone call one day. He's just like, you know, I'm really not happy. This thing's not as quiet as it used to be. And you know, we get you get calls like that. You're like, yeah, whatever. Send it in. Well, we'll check it. We'll put it on the meter. But as soon as this can came out of the box, we were just laughing because you cannot see a baffle. Like
0: a it was one. basically
2: a tube, a, a call car- of carbon. <laughs> he he, obviously never thought about cleaning it once. Mm-hmm. And I did put it on the meter. I did put a video up. There is a video on YouTube. I think it's like ten or twelve dB. Yeah, yeah. louder than it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. which is pretty significant. Yep. You know, that's that's a lot. And yeah, the can was, what, 10, 12 ounces heavy? It's
1: probably close to a pound.
2: Yeah, maybe even closer to a pound of carbon inside the suppressor. Um,
0: How so the hell did you clean that, that one?
2: It took a long time. We let it soak. It took like months. Yeah. Okay.
1: And, then, and you know, I think now what we would probably do is just cut it <laughs> apart and put it in a new core. It's probably easier than... Spending yeah, three months cleaning it. Yeah.
2: We've messed with uh we've messed with attachments on the ends of uh power washes and stuff like that too.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We've we've tried all sorts of stuff. Um you know, every weird technique you read about on like the internet somewhere, we've tried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Including like putting anti freeze in like a turkey boiler. Okay. <laughs> that that didn't do.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, amazing. Amazing. Oh, wow. Cool, man. It,
2: it, you're better off just to stay on it. Like, whatever the number is, um, some powders are dirtier than others. H1000 is notoriously filthy. Um, if you just stay on it, if you maybe every way you can when you get it when it's new, when it gets to half an ounce or 0.678 ounces, then it should only take you a few days of soaking right. to get that out. But if you let it get to two, three ounces heavy, It just takes more time because it's not like it's laid in there. That stuff is actually, you know, it's pressurized in there. It's packed in there. It's packed in there dense. So yeah.
0: And carbon's hard.
2: Not so bad. Right. But CLR is the trick and just have patience, you know, yeah, you pick a period of time where you're not shooting for a few days and, uh, let it soak and just let the
1: CLR do its thing. Or well, I will say, you know, if you don't want to mess with it, we offer free cleaning to our customers once a year. If you ship it to us, we'll clean it for free and you, 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 know, you can ship it back. Okay. Um, that's uh, if you don't want to mess with it, you know, most people, actually honestly, for most people, they don't even need to clean once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I say what, Ray, less than a, a quarter of our customers need to clean that often? Yeah, probably. probably. Yeah. So,
2: yeah, unless you're one of the, you know PRS shooters and out there testing hand loads or going and taking multiple classes, you know, I mean, I'm sure you deal with it, right? You get guys that they shoot a box of ammo before hunting season.
0: Yep. They make sure the scope's
2: good. They shoot a few rounds during hunting season. And maybe if they pick up their gun once before hunting season again, right. So people like that could get wherever never cleaning the can, Right.
0: If they do that, Um,
2: guys (laughs) like you guys like me going to the range you know, sending rounds all the time. It's not not uncommon to have two, three, 400 round days. Yeah. What's going to have
0: to happen quite a bit more, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm with you on that. So back to, back to, uh, the, the manufacturing in kind of a way I've noticed on the internet of late that you guys have significantly reduced your, your lead times and y'all actually even have some stuff in stock. And tell me about that. Tell me why I'm seeing that.
1: Um, you know, the gun industry has these crazy demand periods and then we have these crazy periods where people aren't buying. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in, in the NFA world that's a little bit easier because it's kind of damped down. I mean, if you look at like AR receivers, right? There'll be time when everyone's cracking out AR receivers and they're selling for like over a hundred bucks, and then you wait eighteen months and they're giving them away for like ten bucks if you if you do the paperwork, right? It's right. just like the it's like the boom and bust. Well, the NFA is is tamped down a little bit, um, but there's always been a strong and like growing demand for silencers. And, we, and since we do everything in house, you know, we just we we grow linearly and try to like you know scale up our production in a way that maintains the quality and keeps us under control of everything that we produce, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my it's slow. To, you know, I guess we're slow to grow, so to speak. But you know, it just took us like two years of. Adding people and machines, making processes more efficient, to get where we where we are, and finally we got to the point where we're caught up. So, and by caught up, I mean that like um, we're probably four to six weeks out on orders that are submitted now, mm-hmm. which is if you consider like the forms and like chains and QC, that's about the time it takes to get one to pop out a manufacturing batch. Um, so that's where we're at now. Um, you know, we still have the opportunity to scale up a little bit more with with more shifts
0: um but i think at this at this level we're pretty good are you y'all y- 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 you're running two shifts now are, are y'all just going five days a week are y'all running seven days a week we have two shifts for five days right now yeah. okay in the past we have been up at
1: three um but then i think we had the big sounds of in to 2017 and we went down to two again
2: and just keeping keeping the quality like we're really strict with our operators and and the tolerances, like you know, our operators are initialing all the parts they drop, so we know who came from where. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, sometimes some people just don't last with us. Yeah. You know, we we
1: we make a really high end product, and uh, in our machine shop, it's in hard. Our, our factory or machine shop, whatever you want to call <laughs> it, it's a really tight ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and that's from primarily that's to, that's credit to shane's military career i mean you can tell this guy lived on you know our i mean we, we we've had uh like machine reps come in and say oh my gosh the shop is so clean you walk into some machine shops you know around town or whatever and it's just like a disaster area and ours i mean you could get off the floor that's
2: the first thing every rep that i've ever dealt with i don't deal with the reps a lot but when i'm up there and someone comes to visit the comments i always get are they cannot believe how clean the shop is for a machine shop. They're always commenting on, but that's what happens. Like we make our guys, they clean the machine, they clean the floor around the machines when they pass off to the next shift, because um, everything we do is high end precision. So it, I don't know, it's just par for the course in my brain. You know, yeah, you can't have a, you can't have a filthy shop cranking out. High end parts. Like, I've never been to the Ferrari factory, but if I walked in, I wouldn't expect to see stuff laying all over the floor and crap everywhere, would you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. It probably looked like the dealership.
2: <laughs> right. So, and then again, that's all credit to Shane because Shane's in charge of production and, you know, 24 years in the Navy as a master machinist. Um, yeah, that's what he brought and he brings all that to us and, uh, makes it hard to keep people. You know, we yeah. have people who you can only make the same mistake, for so many times before we show you the door, you know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean,
1: in, uh, having our business in, in Wyoming, it definitely suits like more of a, uh, an old type American work ethic versus, yeah. you know, there's not like, you're not going to be on your phone while you operate the machine. You're not going to do all the stuff like you're on the machine. You do a good job with it. And that's what you do. We're not, uh, I don't want to like throw generations under the bus, but that's not sort of like the stereotypical uh, view that people have of of some young people coming into the workforce. Right.
2: Yeah, you need to come visit when you're in town this time.
0: Oh, I definitely will. I definitely will. Y'all are only like a half hour from me. So, yeah, I'm gonna definitely. Yeah, it's close. It. We'll
2: give you the nickel tour.
0: Oh, man, I can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it. Well, that was one of the questions you brought up being in Wyoming, because I know y'all are in y'all are in Cheyenne. And both of you guys are talking about Colorado. I know y'all y'all both live in, in Colorado. Uh, why? Yeah. Why Cheyenne? Why Wyoming?
1: Well, I mean, it started that way because we started literally in Shane's garage. <laughs> <laughs> that was mm-hmm. what, like a what, like a fifteen by twenty-five foot, yeah, hut. Well, first we started in the garage, and then in the actual in garage. Box.
2: So we started in Shane's garage because Shane was in charge of production, um, and then we literally in the garage with a lathe, and then we built a seven hundred square foot Quonset hut next to his house that we put some machines in. Um, and then when we were having the discussion of where to do this, besides it had to be convenient for Shane, um, Wyoming is just way more friendly to a firearms manufacturer than Colorado. Right. Um, I mean, look, we lost Magpul and several other companies in the last few years here
0: Yeah, to I legislation. Would... Yeah, I wow. was wondering if that had something to do with why y'all were there, because I, I it's just—it's such a difference, you know, what what a, a 12-inch border makes, you know what I mean, with how yeah. you know, gun-friendly it is and everything else. And I know that, like you've been mentioning Magpul, which is, like, we've spoken earlier, how many jobs was that, that left? 350. Wow, wow. It 350 just
2: manufacturing, that didn't count the execs, right? So right. More. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And that's crazy. Yeah. And it's way different. Like here, you know, we, we just got away with curtailing uh, an assault weapons ban in Colorado for now.
0: <laughs> yeah. But there's, <laughs> still some, there in there's still some stuff that, that came, there's still some stuff that did pass that isn't very gun friendly, uh, wait times and stuff like that. I mean, Lisa, we're talking about that. Yeah. Today. Yeah.
1: There are, I mean, I think they're trying to throw everything at the wall that they could. That's clearly their strategy. Um, I mean, I, I guess on the, if you Want to look on the positive side of it? They wow. are the ones that pass are probably fairly likely to be able to be struck down if we have the right core cases. So right. But we'll see about that.
2: And up there, you know, I was at the shop one day. Two black SUVs pull up, guys in suits get out. I'm like, oh crap, we're being raided. <laughs> um guys come in the front door, one of the guys looks around and puts his hands up, he's like, hey. I'm Governor Matt Mead. I just found out about you guys. I love guns. So we had an unexpected visit from the Wyoming governor. You know, he came by to say hello. He ended up being extremely helpful. He was asking if we had any issues. And we were like, yeah, you know, it's a little hard to get people up here. And he put us right in touch with the Wyoming workforce people. And it's taken five years. But actually, the Laramie Community College this spring... Is actually starting a two year certificate machinist program that we've been heavily involved with. Oh, that's cool. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been probably five years from me going and talking to the president and dean of admissions. And for those of you that know me, like you know me, I, sometimes I'm a little colorful and animated. So <laughs> nah. going and talking to <laughs> university presidents really isn't my thing. Um, but it went well enough. You know, I convinced them that, you know, we. You, you should have a program like this. It's not just Thunderbeast. It's we stopped making stuff in America, right? Like right. we need these machinists yeah. program back in in the country. So uh, it actually starts this spring. It's been a five-year process, but they've spent millions of dollars. They built a building. They've Six got machines. machines yeah, they bought, they spent like $6 million on this. So it's, it's real and it starts this spring, which is pretty cool.
0: That is cool. And you said the program's a two-year program?
2: Yeah, they're going to have, uh i i know they're doing a boot camp program right off the bat but it is a two-year certificate program where they're going to teach you to run they've got laves mills i think a edm in there uh even a printer or 3d printer because that technology is you know evolving so fast yeah um you know after i kind of sold them on the idea i turned it over to our shop manager will and shane you know the production partner they they kind of took the reins, and they've been helping with curriculum and what machines to buy and all sorts of stuff. So,
0: yeah, it's nice to
2: see that happen.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, <laughs> and that's all because the governor came by. Yeah. To, <laughs> well, he, to he, he turned hello. into uh, he he kind of turned into a, a shop rat too, huh? He, he came by yeah, more than he once. Did.
2: He used to come yep. by.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, he used to buy, you know, guns from other people, and we were we ended up being his FFL of transfer, and he was buying cans from us and. You know he first showed up with his whole entourage it got to the point where you'd show up in the morning he'd be there early with his his one guy from the protection detail and filling out forty four seventy three so way better than the relationship with the governor down here in Colorado though so, way better
0: <laughs> yeah I hear you I hear you tell me about the bipod oof uh,
2: that's something that came about during one of the lulls. Great
1: sounds from of 2017. So we know we <laughs> we all have our favorite. Bipod. You know, I'm still a fan of the old AI Parker Hale bipod. on my AWs. I still shoot that thing. I love it.
0: I'm not um, sure you and I can be friends yeah. after that, Zach.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, small. A- I still have a bunch of AWs, and I'm never going to get rid of those things. I I love AWs. Um, I have. More modern AIs, but I still love those old ones. But in yeah. any case, like we all had our own little things. And during the silence, or you know, when the when the market crashed for about a year after the HPA or whatever didn't go through, forty one F, I guess, um, we're like, hey, let's do a non like FFL product just so we had something that we could sell without a whole bunch of paperwork, right? Right. So we kind of went through. Like we had basically brainstormed like all of the things that I liked and all the things that I hated. Ray had all the things that he liked and what he hated. Shane had the same thing, and our engineers pitched in. It took us a while to get to get that thing, but basically we sort of like we wanted like a field, a good field operation bipod. And we all know there's like once you get like you know you're at the steel safari or anywhere out in the field and like you're in some weird position on rocks and you got to reach up and adjust this thing, you know, and you're on the clock like there's always features that are like you hate and there's always features that you really like. Mm -hmm. And we just tried to get one that was really good for that. I mean, it's not like a skypod, which is, you know, skypods are complex. They're hard to operate. Um, They're somewhat fragile. It's not meant to be, you know, that kind of a, a, a bipod. It's meant to be like a really solid field operable like bipod.
2: Yeah. I look at it as, I was looking at the guns I have, right? Like custom surgeons and bighorn actions and ai x's and the bipods i was using were still harris bipods with aftermarket feet right because they kind of fit my need like for field shooting type that kind of fit my need the best like the harris with the slotted legs and aftermarket feet was like the best thing for my style of shooting for what i like
0: those things are the Um, shit
2: yeah, but it was weird, right? Looking at like this stamped piece of metal that was probably designed in 1940 or so, mm-hmm. holding up a, a five thousand dollar rifle with a five thousand dollar scope. I was like, "Well, my, my man, favorite, we need something better."
1: My favorite <laughs> thing about the Harris bipod, and I mean favorite sarcastically, is that um, like we have whole like shooting technique like systems, like the whole like rifle. Yes, you have to preload your rifle a little bit. We have it. It's been emphasized, in my opinion. The whole like rifle preload thing has been emphasized so much because 95% of the people were using Harris bipods and they suck and they hop and all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So now in my opinion, we're like compromising our shooting technique to some extent just because we have a crony bipod, you know, and that's like if you shoot an AI bipod, it has a lot of play. It freaks people out in the United States because it has so much play. Mm-hmm. But that play means you're never gonna get hop on an AI bipod, it's impossible.
0: Well, I could see I can see. I'm. I'm looking at one right now. I can. I can see its origins in the, in the boat anchor Parker Hale. I can see. Some <laughs> of that. I can see a little bit of that. And what I'm. I'm a fan of the of the old A W S as well as you may or may not know. But um, <laughs> that that the Parker Hale man with with no. I mean it just. I don't know, man. It didn't, y'all solved it. You can tighten it up to where your rifle doesn't fall over and you can adjust how much you want that tension to be on there. I can deploy Mm it. I can deploy it without pushing a button. Uh, You know, it's, it's, that was a
2: big deal too. That came straight from SOCOM.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was was a SOCOM.
2: I mean, I know you deal with a lot of those guys, right? So some of those bipods with buttons, cold weather gloves, when we were talking to them, it was mandatory to go from stow to
1: deployed with no buttons. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like one of my favorite features on this is you know we have those, we have those little spring loaded buttons towards the bottom of the upper leg, Mm -hmm. which is you'll recognize it's the exact same button style that we have on the AW bipod because if you're on the gun you can reach your weak hand up and if you just can't the gun you know to lift up the opposite leg and hit that button. The leg will just zip out a little bit yep. and you don't have to reach. I see guys all the time on the clock. They like realize that the bipod's too low mm-hmm. and they reach up with both hands because they need to pull some stupid little like retainer thing as they yank the leg out. Right? right. It's a huge waste of time. And that's one of those things that basically came exactly from that Parker Hill bipod.
0: Yep. I see it. I see it. Well, I have it. I've got it on two of my AWs as, and man, I've even got it on my voodoo 22. I put the spike feet on that one because it's meaner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice well that's cool man that's cool and dirt i mean that y'all build all of that crap in-house huh yeah we cut everything mm-hmm. on those the only thing we don't cut is the uh
2: the ADM pick lever. We mm-hmm. weren't going to try to go around. There's so many different right. Picatinny yeah, we just buy that levers so on nice the market.
1: And, at, you know. Yeah, we yeah. get that mount straight from We
2: just yeah. get that straight from yeah. ADM. So the lever and that crossbar we get from ADM. And then the, else, rubber,
1: the rubber molded on the feet. Yeah. We have that mold yeah, over. Yeah, everything else we, else we cut, and then we have the rubber molded for us. I mean, the yeah. funny yeah. thing about that bipod is that it has more parts than the here on. <laughs> which, we, we talk about, like, <laughs> and, like... Parts inventory. That's the biggest yeah. <laughs> annoyance. Is that it has so many parts in that bipod that we need to keep an inventory and QC and everything. Oh, I
0: know, I know, I know that it has. I know that it has a lot of parts, a lot of parts that we can't even see, but they do perform very well. I will tell you that. And um, well, guys, I want to address something with you, and it's on behalf of an industry. Um, we have been we have been around a long time. Uh, Rifles Only has been doing this stuff for a long, long time. And we've been putting on matches for a long, long time. And we have always, always enjoyed a very, very generous sponsorship from Thunder Beast Arm Company. And not only us, but you guys really, really give back to the shooting community. And I mean, I, I know that I'm speaking for match directors all over the United States whenever I say thank you very much for that. Because y'all don't come in and and half ass it. I mean, y'all, y'all don't. Y'all, y'all go all out for these matches. And I I I hope we, I hope some of our competitors have contacted you guys because we always give them an email, say, Hey, thank these guys, thank these guys, thank these guys. But uh man, thank y'all for for what y'all do for the community. I mean, I know that I know that every time, you know, you put out a 50 off certificate or a certificate for 100 percent, a new suppressor that comes right, right directly off your bottom line. And it it means a lot to a lot of people out there. And so thank you guys for that. I don't know what your philosophy is, but you guys are very, very generous.
1: Um, Well, you are. I mean, you're welcome. And everyone's I mean, really, thank you. I mean, I thought it was kind of funny when you said, like, it, it's as if we're not the shooting community i mean me and ray and shane we all i mean we basically met at matches more or less right, right. i mean right. like we all come from i mean i'm, I'm also a match director you know it's like <laughs> uh one thing in the gun industry it's pretty obvious which companies are the ones that have like you know like nerds that don't shoot we have nerds that do shoot which yeah. really helps us out for our for our guys but if you have nerds that don't shoot and then you have like mbas like you, you can tell because their products don't mesh with actually like how they need to be used, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I mean, we're all on the same team. I mean, like, I I just see it as supporting the community that we're already a part of. I mean, you know, we we've all shot matches, we all run matches, it's it's just how this whole thing works. Mm-hmm. So and that's and from my perspective, I mean, you know, there's the guys who win something at every match, but then you have the guys who have worked hard that practiced hard and they you know maybe they come in like eight you know or they come mm-hmm. in like in the top, in the top of whatever and they get something off the prize table they are going to tell everybody they know hey man i shot this mac it was awesome i placed pretty well and you wouldn't believe what i got off the prize table i, I mean see. like that's what this whole thing is about really you know it's like working hard doing the best you can um and, and, and to be honest <laughs> and it is good advertising um but i i just see it as you know if we don't we're all part of the same team here, essentially. So that that's our philosophy. Yeah, I think we, uh,
2: instead of running a, a color ad in Recall Magazine,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I, would, I would rather allocate certs to matches, you know, right to the people. Um, it's the best advertising for us to have cans out there anyway. Um, you know, the best thing for us is having our product next to somebody else's product. So to get it in people's hands... Who are out there actually using them the way they're intended to be used, you know? Right. And like it ed- just makes more sense to us than running it to me. And I know I know Zach and Shane agree. It's you, you you're not gonna see a full color ad or any ads in any magazines from us. It's not
1: what we do. No, we've 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 never really been big on conventional we, marketing. We but were you know, you think a gorilla. Of, you know, you think of the PRS guys, like or even like think of like a local guy who just shoots like I'm just gonna use IDPA as an example right for every one of those guys who shoots the local IDPA matches there's guys that he knows like at work or wherever that he talks guns with right mm-hmm. and then you take a PRS guy right for every guy who goes to like a national level match which there are a lot of them now mm-hmm. you know there's 10 guys like the guy who only shoots the local match right? right and then for him there's 10 guys that he talks to at work or whatever so I mean just the leverage there is is pretty amazing
2: yeah I we prefer the guerrilla method, I guess. And it's, it's good for the industry. It's good for us. And uh, I, it's just been mutually beneficial. So we will continue to do it.
0: All right. Well, both of y'all gave me, you know, your thoughts on what y'all did. And I buy everything that you're saying, your advertising value and everything else. But I mean, I don't even have to say that I'm going out on a limb here. But if y'all did half of what you currently do no one could say that y'all weren't extremely generous. What I'm saying is you guys are over the fricking top with y'all support of these matches and everything else. And I, I don't think, I don't think people understand that y- I've never, I've never had a prize table with one Thunderbeast certificate. It's usually six. You see what I mean? And I, I appreciate all of that. And I know that the other guys out there do too. And it's, it's, it's gotta be more than just the advertising. It, it's, it's the, um, I don't know, man. It's got to be a, a feeling. It's got to be a feeling that y'all do. It's just better to give than receive. Y'all, y'all are good folks, yeah, man. Y'all are right. good folks.
1: I, I mean, to our people, you know, that's yeah. for anybody who's ever, our core people. for anybody who's ever like tried to like get stuff together for a prize table. And I think everyone sitting here has
0: done that in the past. Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, it can be
1: hard in my philosophy, you know, at Thunderbeast is like if you, look if you run a, a legitimate match, mm-hmm. we're not going to you know I mean we'll give you something right if it's like we were like ten buddies trying to boot up a new match like out in the middle of nowhere somewhere I don't know we'll you know like we'll give you something right because like that's how this whole thing grows yeah. um you know we've seen booms and busts in other sports yep. you know like three gun uh, cowboy. And, and honestly, we're still in the boom cycle for PRS, and I don't know what's going to come after, but um, it is a really compelling, I mean, for me, like, I got it, I, I don't really shoot IPSC anymore, mm-hmm. you know, I don't big gun very much anymore, I shoot more like we, weird multi-gun stuff, but, like, we all like long range for a variety of reasons, I, I like it, because there's, it's the ability to protect force and distance. you know, yep. come, comes down to it, that's a really compelling idea for a lot of people, so I think it's just going to keep
0: going. I hope so. Well you're speaking of match directors, you have one coming up, don't you? Uh yeah. So um
1: I uh we have the steel this isn't T back, but I'm the match director for the Steel Safari, mm-hmm. which I think that you've shot before. Um
0: I have. And uh I've actually won that match before. Uh huh. But that was back when uh, dinosaurs still still walked on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: that must have been what like before 05 when you won, isn't it? Oh
0: yeah, yeah, way before. I mean, yeah. I was I yeah. was uh, I was happy because I had a, a AW that I was able to screw a sixteen inch barrel on and go and shoot because of the, mm-hmm. the ranges for that match and everything else. Oh yeah, this is this is well before that. This is this is back Dave Wheeler. The, type.
1: The, yeah, I mean when Dave ran that, um, you know man, that match is so much more difficult now than it was in, I mean, the first year that I shot it was 06. Mm-hmm. Um, but way harder than it was then. Um, but the competitors have gotten better and the equipment has gotten better and the knowledge has gotten better. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, yeah, so we have the Steel Safari coming up down there in New Mexico in about three weeks. Uh, re- registration's open now. If you just Google for like Competition Dynamics Steel Safari, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Competition Dynamics site is where I have all the matches for my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um And I think this year, I'll just give a plug to them real quick. We have the Steel Safari, which is an individual rifle match in the field. Mm -hmm. And then, like, three weeks later, we have the Burris Optics Team Challenge up in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Um, And that one, it's kind of, like, almost like Mm IRTC-esque, where we give you an hour, and you have to, like, hike this path. And along the way, you're going to have, like, four, like, big shoot stations. Mm -hmm. But your time is over the whole hour. So if you finish early, we give you bonus points on top of that. Right. Um And that's for a rifle shooter and a carbine shooter, so it's a team. And then in the afternoons, we do some, like, super involved assault stages for, like, all four guns, two pistols, and a rifle and a carbine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and the time, you know, t- to give you an idea of how big those assault stages are, like, our, our max time is, like, eight minutes. Oh, wow. So, like, it can be a lot of shooting. Um, so I hope you're good at pistol. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got... Um, Later this year, we've got a new match. It's called the uh, the Savage Hunter Extreme. It's an NRL match in conjunction with Travis Ishida.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is it's actually going to be like it's it's also a team match. But it's going to be like a sort of like a cross between a conventional match like ours, like of the CD style and the NRL. So uh, we'll have stages that are a little bit more like NRL, but you also have to camp. Like you have to carry all your junk and you have to camp overnight at this match. Oh, cool. Um, and we're going to have other like hunting-related challenges, uh, w- whatever that means. Um, so that's going to be a hoot. It's always fun to shoot up in Wyoming. And uh, this is a whole new thing for NRL is to have like an overnight camping. It's like a, it's almost like a spike camp-based nice. match. Um, and then we've got the Sniper Adventure Challenge, which is a full-on like fifty-mile adventure race
3: mm-hmm.
1: over forty-eight hours with with uh, with sniper guns, and we have you do everything from land nav. Uh, Physical challenges, you know, escape, innovation, all that kind of junk. Cool. Um, and then we have the uh, team safari in October. The team safari is uh, just a team version of the steel safari. Okay. So take a look at those. They're really good. People always have a lot of fun. Uh, we have our own little flavor of how we run stuff, but yeah, check it out.
0: Yeah, you probably need some, some place to where somebody can come and get information because you're doing a lot of different kinds of matches with different organizations, and uh, that that's good. That's real good.
1: Yeah, all that, all that data is if you go to competition-dynamics.com that has all the matches, both of the 2023 events. Okay. Um, any questions, you can contact me or whatever. But, yeah, uh, the matches are cool. Um, you know, Ray used to be my co-match director, but the company just got too busy yeah. Uh, so now it's just be kind of getting that going. So.
0: so you leave Ray at home to take care of business and you go off and play. Well, he's away doing demos. Oh,
1: so I'm not I'm doing demos and yeah, it's hard to
2: be, <laughs> it wasn't fair to shame when me and Zach would both leave for a week or two <laughs> yeah. in places where, where our phones don't work for a week, you know? Right.
0: Yeah. Well, let me tell you an interesting story about that, that year that I won still safari. Um, I was actually, I was not shooter. Number one who took off. I think I was shooter. Number six or something like that. And so, Uh, The shooter behind me, shooter like 11 or 12, something like that. When we first took off, there was like this little, little downhill. Not, not much. It had a good slope on it, you know, but it was only like eight feet, if I remember correctly. But the guy who went, he slipped and he fell and he went down there on his butt and, you know, with feet first. And whenever he was on his butt, he got bit in the calf by a rattlesnake through his pants.
2: Uh, uh.
0: And you know what? He didn't quit. He completed it. And he, really? Yep. I, I well, yeah. Well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He knew it was a dry bite. I guess. I guess it's probably not the first time he had been bit. But I walked up to him. And I said, "Dude, I won this match, but man, <laughs> you won. <laughs> you won. Yeah,
2: that's tough as hell.
0: Yeah. So that
2: is a cool match, man. I, I've been fortunate. I won that match a couple times, and it's uh, I, I really like the style of that match so out of I?
0: everything I've seen out." So do I. And, and it's such, it's at such a great location, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's just wonderful all the way around. You know, Brian came down and, and, and did a a class with me a couple of years ago. And, uh, we keep threatening on one of those trips. We're going to meet out there and, and do some shooting.
2: You guys should do it as you should Guys should do the team safari together.
0: Maybe, maybe. <laughs>
3: That'd be
1: good, yeah.
0: That'd yeah. be a hell of a team. Yeah. I wonder about that. Um, Kind of a kind of his home range. I, I think I will team up with that guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, um Brian doesn't get to shoot. So for his classes, he doesn't get to shoot on the north. On the north, he, he gets to shoot basically the west course and maybe some of the south, but not the north at all. Mm-hmm. So he does shoot there a lot, which is an advantage. But um I mean, of course, I you mean know, I change the shoot positions and targets every match. Yeah. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, the North rim, he doesn't even get the cheap air for his mat for his <laughs> class.
0: So, yeah, I get that. I get that. And, and it's not really, it, I mean, it's, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it if he had an un, unfair advantage anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, cool deal cool. guys. Well, listen, I'm i I'm about, um, I'm, we're right at an hour, man. That's about how long we keep them. Um, again, cool. there is, there's, there's no words to express my appreciation for you guys taking the time. Uh, for what y'all have built with Thunderbeast uh for the way that you support the community and the quality that your know, quality product that you guys put out I mean there's just there is nothing to complain about anything about your company and about you guys and it's just uh it is an absolute honor and pleasure for me to have you uh come into my my little small podcast
2: well thanks for having us and when, you. when you're out here with these classes look us up and Come get the nickel
0: tour. <laughs> I definitely will stay on with me and let me outro this thing. Cool. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for spending time with us. This is a, this is a really good one. It was uh, really nice to have you guys. So if you're in the market for a suppressor or a bipod, you know where to go now. Thank you, sirs, And later.